and welcome to episode 64 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And in our latest look at what's happening on Melbourne cinema screens, we'll be taking a look at the final highlights of Myth, including Lulu Wang's The Farewell, Monrovia, Indiana, and Long Day's Journey Into Night, and Animals. We'll also open up the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, jump into your oversized car with no seatbelts and turn up some era-appropriate advertisements. It's Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. And well, has been. On August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino's pay-on to 1960s Hollywood, to the end of Hollywood's golden age and to the end of something else in Los Angeles. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is as imbued with fondness for an era as it is with regret for something lost. Following, for the most part, three slow-paced days in the lives of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, The film uses the buddy movie genre format as a template to support and explore a broader study of a particular time and a past and present culture's investment in devastation. The devastation here is the dissolution of Hollywood's studio system, of the Western film genre, of the American counterculture movement and, of course, of the Manson family murders of August 1969. As Joan Didion wrote in her essay The White Album, The 60s ended once and for all on that August 9th day that year. There was no recovering the spirit so brutally lost that day. On that particular day, wrote Didion, the tension broke. The paranoia was fulfilled. Without wanting to seem to draw disrespectful connections, it is this that the film mirrors in its broadly drawn days, its protracted runtime and its unmistakable brewing sense of terror for anyone familiar with this particular history committed by the Manson family. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tells a story that we should all feel uneasy about. It is an uneasy film in some ways because of this, but it is also a very beautiful one and Tarantino remains respectful of the real-life victims in this story. In his book The Dream Life, Jay Hoberman declares the crazy, important summer of 1969, featuring Woodstock and the moon landing, the release of Easy Rider and The Wild Bunch, among other things, as the summer of myth made material. Anders, Mm. what did you think of the film and how Tarantino engages with the mythology of the decade versus the very real horror of the murders that ended it? Yes, it's a good question and it's very interesting, I think, the film's exploration of this. So the first thing to say is that the horrific events of that night when the Manson family, the followers of Charles Manson, broke into the home that was uh, of, of Sharon Tate and killed her and five people all up in that house. That inevitably looms over this film. So it's Tarantino sort of is counting down through sort of time and place, um, subtitles on the screen, that kind of stuff. It's all there. But it's really a film about this uh, relationship between Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth um, and the culture, the counterculture around them and sort of their growing sense, I guess, of, um, I guess, becoming more and more irrelevant and all of that kind of stuff. That is really what I thought the film was mostly interested 
in and then um, I think Tarantino drilled some interesting, teases out some interesting parallels between that and what happened with the Manson family but, and particularly in that sort of really incredibly tense scene where Brad Pitt's character goes to visit them out at the ranch where they really lived, this disused Western ranch. It seems like it's someone that knows, but it's it's real. It's what happened. The Manson family were living out on this Western, this ranch that had been sort of leased out to be Westerns for a long time. The stories sort of come and go and they, and they join up um, sort of in spectacular fashion uh, in the end of the film. But overall, I found it... I'm still thinking about it, I've got to say, and I mean that in the best possible way. It's And it's unmistakably Tarantino. And, yeah, I, there are some issues that we can maybe discuss um, with the film, um, but it's he's exploring such interesting things. I think when we walked out of the cinema, I said it was just... It is refreshing to see a film about the 60s that isn't the sort of standard peace and love, hippies, revolution hagiography that we are so often treated to when the baby boomers start self-mythologising about that period. And it's interesting to see that period through the lens of of someone who, is he being reactionary? I'm not quite sure. But but he's certainly far more ambivalent about hippies than most uh, American filmmakers, or at least the films that we are so often treated to. Okay, Andy, you said this was one of your favourite films of the first half of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still thinking about it now. Like it is quite. There's just a lot there. It reminded me quite a bit of of Twin Peaks: The Return in the way that David Lynch and Tarantino both seem to be extremely pessimistic about young people. Like in this film, there's pretty much no redeeming young person. They're all like portrayed as like gutter rats who are you know scrounging food from bins, who are like exchanging sexual favors for rides in cars who were brainwashed and they don't deserve any sympathy or they don't deserve any sort of understanding. Essentially, I think they are, to kind of go against what you were just saying, they are kind of written as these sorts of paper-thin characters. Mm. And so I think there are enormous problems with the film and that's part of it is that. And same with David Lynch in The Twin Peaks of Return, almost all young people when they were on drugs or some, even though I think they maybe were worthy of sympathy a little more or more understanding, but there was just a whole litany of these younger people who were suffering. Um, for various other reasons. But also I think it's interesting because... It's funny. Sorry, Andy, I'm just going to interject because you have at one point referred to them, all of the young people are on drugs and then in the next sentence you said they're all suffering. Like are they on drugs because they're suffering for some reason that is unfathomable to whoever is making this portrayal of them and that is what makes it interesting. Well, I was talking about the, the young people in Twin Peaks to Return and I think they do. It is seen as part, big, part of a bigger economic social sort of situation of Twin Peaks. The and town. in this case, in it, Hollywood, it's just kind of suggested that they're all on drugs and that's where all of this like, well, yeah, you know, kind of horror comes from. I mean, that's that's really interesting yeah, in its well, own sense, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. And I think overwhelmingly the message that you can take away from this is young people, yuck. Because <laughs> like it is a lot of like it's a, this beautiful romanticising of the relationship between Cliff and Rick and they're given all this time to, to explore their feelings and their, themselves and take advantage of the slender opportunities being offered to them. But don't you at think the tail that's, end of the that's a reflection of those characters' perspectives? Yeah, like, I think it's interesting that Tarantino would choose to focus on them. I mean, yeah. in that interview he talks about how, you know, it struck him about a decade ago that this was a very interesting relationship between the stuntman and, his, and the star and this would be an interesting way to explore this part of time. And I think it is. It, is, it gives him a little chance to do what he's best at, which is like put make these beautiful worlds 
with music and with acting and with these beautiful little details here and there. I mean, there's so many details in this. Yeah, the it, details are amazing. I mean, there are long beautifully stretches. Beautifully made. Yeah. Long stretches of this film where it's just characters sort of driving. Driving around like Talking a, yeah. and listening to the radio and then the media, the use of media. I mean, yeah. it's almost... Mm. Um, video essay or it gets a little bit like yes there is this narrative although i've got to say the narrative is very slowly unfurls and there's Mm. a lot of space for these sequences of yet characters hanging out and talking and and consuming media Mm. i mean there's so much media from the ads to the radio to the drive-in to the billboards they drive by all presented you know, in situ uh, as if it were. Um, like his attention to detail is quite amazing. And just that notion of uh, mediation is, its it, I thought it was really uh, successfully realised. Mm, same. A lot of people have made films about the end of eras and the end of the 60s and the, the golden age of Hollywood. And I don't think that anyone has specifically focused on like the end of Hollywood for what it was at the time, concurrent to this particular horror that was brewing in Los Angeles at the time. Balancing those two things is really, you know, of course he picks out the most romantic elements of his memory. I don't have any problem with him doing that. I love that. That's beautiful. That's how we all see, you know, the the 60s is this era that is defined by mythology as much as like actual history more than any other decade maybe in our recent history. I just felt so – I really like this movie and, Andy, like you, I can't stop thinking about mm, it. Yeah. <laughs> and I maybe like it more and more as I become, you know, more distanced from it. I just felt so nauseous watching this happen. It was like am I complicit in this eventual horror that is going to occur because here I am – Watching this movie about a time that's cool, it's like Hollywood is glamour and hedonism and it's being like, you know, pushed up against this other idea of Mm, hedonism that is defined entirely not by glamour and I'm loving it and I know what's going to happen at the end and even though it doesn't happen, it still happens, you know, we all know what actually occurred and I thought I just there's something really uncomfortable about the fact that he made this movie yeah. and I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I love the movie and that mm. makes me really uncomfortable. This is a buddy movie, right? And I kind of was thinking in the same way as like The Nightingale is a buddy movie <laughs> yeah, in right. the template mm. and it's a buddy movie in service of presenting these horrific things that actually occurred in history so that we have to come right up front with what occurred and and reckon with it. You know, in the media when this was announced, I thought, you know, it, Tarantino was making a movie about the Manson murders. Yes, And right. I remember yeah, yeah. groaning and yeah. thinking, yeah. oh. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the entire media from what I saw kind of groaned and thought, oh, it, does he need to do this? And it's not really what he did. So, of course, that was the media latching onto something. And yeah, yeah, he was trying to correct the record the whole time and nobody's really listening. It was like, yeah, you're doing 1969 LA but the Manson murders as well. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of like he, he, you know, you think he wishes he could have presented this period without this particular underlying thing, but he couldn't do but that. No, the course. choice of mixing real people and fictitious people is gives him this, like, this even broader canvas now to explore things that he wants to. Mm. Yeah, which I think is really a, kind of a brave creative decision, which he did with the Inglourious Bastards as well. But yeah, yeah I just totally felt so. Here. I I I like this movie a lot, and I felt so uneasy about about it. Just 
And that's the that's probably the point. Like I feel like even if you didn't feel uneasy about your, you know, complicity in the, the actions presented on screen, you would still feel uneasy because as a film it's drawn out, you know, like Tarantino draws on all of these cinematic kind of techniques to induce anxiety in the audience, you know, the like the long car drives, just like the nothing happening, the fact that it's kind of just three days apart from that one semi-montage sequence where they're coming back from Italy, right, and it's like six months later. Yeah, yeah. I mean he's so good at generating that kind of anxiety in the audience. Mm. Did you, but as well it's a very satisfying cinematic anxiety and that is a problem because this is fucked. Right, like what Manson did, what the family did, mm. was, and so like, why am I enjoying this mm. yeah, in a cinematic sense? It's just all so twisted. Did either of you have the ending spoiled for you? Do you know what was going to no, happen? No, I had no idea. I I got a bit of a sense because I'd seen. I think every time I saw a tweet or an article or a headline about it, I looked away, and so I because I knew the ending was something to avoid, mm. but I saw something about. Sharon Tate's sister being grateful for what Quentin Tarantino had given Sharon. Yes. Um, yeah. Finally the ending that she deserved. And and I so I had a suspicion but I didn't know for sure. Right. I certainly okay. didn't know the extent to which it kind of became, you know, the Tarantino-esque yeah. ending. Yeah. Yes. It And it in retrospect it did make so much sense. Like it's it's one of those rare does, endings actually it? where yeah. I wasn't expecting it and then it happened and I thought, well, there was no other way he could have done that. Really? And wow. I spent the whole mm-hmm. film, we sp- we're being a little bit spoilery here. I, we, well, well, we I, I don't think we we're can be spoilery. Yeah. We can talk about this film without it. Okay. I guess I spent the whole film expecting something else to happen. So I was grateful to him for, for not doing that. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is he makes these – Interesting little provocations towards the present, I felt, in the film, mm, particularly yeah, yeah. Me Too. Like, I think he's almost daring us in the particular... Well, if there's a few moments, but um, take Brad Pitt's character, for example. People say that he killed his wife on a yacht. So he's daring us to empathise or sympathise with a man who has, who is accused of or who people say has thrown his wife overboard... Uh, and killed his wife, essentially. So he's doing that. Yeah. Then there's that scene where um, the producer's wife sees that he's on set and, like, starts screaming at him and, like, you know, mm. get off, get yeah. off the set, you know, and, and the producer says, oh, you know, my wife feels unsafe with you here. Like, it all seemed very, like, provocatively targeted towards our new woke sensibility. I don't... No, yeah, I'm not sure if it's quite clear what was. he's doing that for because that is a rare moment where, Ella, you were saying, you know, we move through this quite linear time, but then we have this weird, like, mm. 10 second flashback to him on the Brad Pitt on the boat with his wife, who's, you know, Did like that a shrewish. Seem a little, a little kind of, of a bit of a gesture towards the Natalie Wood, Natalie Wood murder. Or, you know, alleged murder, alleged, I yeah. should yeah. say. <laughs> alleged, alleged. Um, is that what that was about? I don't know. That's whatever how, whatever what it was, was. She, I feel like it's a bit confused. She and, I, and she, the, the wife, played by Rebecca Gayhart of Jawbreaker, um, <laughs> <laughs> and is, doesn't know who that is. Anyway, you had to educate so good. me after the movie. Um, <laughs> says, doesn't she say my, wife, my sister Natalie in the, in the scene? Just as a brief I throwaway, remember. I feel like she did, and it made me think. Well, you know, Natalie died on a boat or off a boat. Um, or, you know, it's inconclusive. Yeah. So what? 
you know, what is he doing there? Is that some other kind of like, you know, gesture towards the 1960s and the, you know, the mythology slash unknown? Yeah, possibly. Um, I, I, yeah, it's, it's strange. Rather than being <laughs> yeah. an indication of that Tarantino is thinking currently about, you know, Me Too and everything. Mm. I don't know. That's. There's just so much to get into this film. It's so interesting. Every tone is in there at some point. Every genre is like somehow slid into this almost seamlessly apart from I think the, t- the final 15 minutes maybe where I feel like the tonal shift is just a bit too great and suddenly we leap into this other. The only other options was that he depicted reality, history re- really, mm. or he cut before it. Well, yeah, but I feel right? like he could have done this in a way that didn't quite necessitate a, some, a young woman being mauled you know, by I a mean, dog beaten and then smashed against well, a Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like a lot of people are like, well, we're just watching women be completely brutalised anyway. But it's not just that. Like the man, because, you know, there are the three and so the man is as well. So aren't you kind of just latching, like kind of jumping on this, oh, my God, Quentin Tarantino doesn't like women no, and female I characters feel like kind of bandwagon? the women who are part of the Manson family are worthy of more understanding than the people who've received similar treatment in his other films, such as slave owners and Nazis. Well, that's true. I mean, yeah, let's talk about that. So, you know, people are like, well, this movie is so sexist. Well, he doesn't give women any kind of any background at all. What do you think about that? Um, no, I think I think he does. I think Margot Robbie is a beautiful example of of, of a woman who doesn't need a lot of dialogue to say a lot. Mm. I agree, and in fact, I was expecting less of yeah, right. Tate yeah. than we got. Like she definitely left an impression her character, mm. but again, it's a film about two men who yeah. are from a mm. certain period of time and who are growing irrelevant. Like it's a film mm. about that. That's what the. That's what I've. Well, that's part. Of, that's another one of the out. things I think that is a nod to today as well. Is that these are two of the yes. last stars on earth, yeah, exactly. along with Tom Cruise and maybe a few exactly. other people. Exactly. And they're being themselves as much as possible. I mean, the other thing that I that I love, and you know, if people try and tell me that you know Sharon Tate doesn't have enough dialogue, I will feel like I will defend this to the end. Yeah, same. Yeah. She's a real Sharon Tate is a person, right? Like. Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are fictional characters. So it makes sense that they have more screen time, that we need to actually kind of like understand who they are in order to understand what they do at each plot point of the film. But Sharon Tate is a person and I actually feel like Tarantino was kind of doing the right thing in not giving her the similar kind of like plot development because we just saw Margot Robbie essentially embodying... Sharon Tate and then she there's that beautiful sequence where she goes and watches the real Sharon Tate on screen in a cinema and that kind of connected the two of them and we thought, you know, there's no mistaking the fact that Margot Robbie is playing an actual real human who was murdered by the Manson family so she deserves respect. So I don't think that she needed more dialogue or more depth as character. There's no reason why we need to really spend more time with her in that same sense that Leo and Brad have more time with their characters. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, particularly the final scene. It made me feel like... You no, know, she's a person, not a character. She, well, maybe, yeah it, yeah. it was like he was embodying her with this sort of spiritual power where she was like the soul or the yeah. mother of Los Angeles opening up. I end up going, like, going on, this, on this long tangent because there's all this, this lo- a lot of mythology to do with... Women in and Los Angeles and this these characters who you know will welcome men and you know with Sakura and these sorts of 
idea. And this is what she was delivering at the, at the end, which I thought was beautiful. And that yeah. made me really walk out of the cinema going, this is such a poignant, beautiful film. And yes. in a way it is Tarantino-ish, but also we got the Tarantino but without the the hotshot dialogue and the f- fast, you know, and the pulling of guns. I know. I mean, people say that Tarantino is fetishising her, but I just think he's respecting her real history. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. But and I would, then at the end, you know, kind of lets us imagine. But the the Manson family girl who is brutally killed is a real person and mm. I think her f- pa- yes. parents may well just go, no, yeah. my she was like 18, 19 at the time. She was brainwashed. She was, you know, a victim. She was, you know... A lot of people who who were smarter and older than her fell victim to Manson's charisma and this sort of stuff, and this is something that I object to. That's very true. He did, you know, they are the real names and the real yeah, people. Some and of them, the some of them are fictitious, some of them are real. But yeah, yeah, mm. the ones who were there, and I mean, Linda Kasabian got to get out of it because maybe that just made it easier. I don't know. Um, yeah, in the yeah. film anyway. But I think that like the casting of Lena Dunham as one of them as Squeaky Frome, I think is extremely oh telling God, and ties so in so much with what you were saying, Anders, about it being like referencing to 2019. That Me was too. so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, like I think just, it, <laughs> it fits so well. Yeah, in, it did, didn't that? Perfect. Yeah, it's another yeah. young people. Ugh, what's going on? I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. Going to bother even trying to understand. Uh, oh. Yeah, what are they doing to our old culture? These young people. Mm. Okay. Um, he may not be fetishizing Sharon Tate, but he is fetishizing feet. Yeah, the feet, the show feet sweeties were in full display. In I mean, the doesn't film. he know that? I feel like he knows to a that. Very self conscious effect. It's so yeah, obvious. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But I, this is just another example of. I think I'm exactly the same with you. Otherwise, it's like he almost dares you not to like the film or to mm. come up with, or like a viewer like like me to to come up with reasons not to. To to find myself invested in it, and yet I just cannot stop thinking about it. Mm, yeah, um, and that's what I find really interesting about the film. It is uncomfortable to watch, in parts. It is uncomfortable, and you know I don't know when it when it finally comes to the the third act, and it reveals itself as August eighth, and the Rolling Stones out of time is playing. Like at that particular point. My unease and queasy sense of dread became like went through the roof. Yeah, I, yeah, I was same. like, "Oh my god, they're out of time!" Obviously, you know, it's a cliche, incredibly. But my dread was alleviated when this cartoonish final sequence right. began. Yeah, okay. But that is that's not like a congratulations to the film or to me for being, you know, all, all of a sudden I feel better. Like, there's also some problem with that. Maybe like you were saying, Andy, right? Like this, these actual horrors are occurring to somebody anyway, even if they're not occurring to the beautiful, innocent people mm. that we that we have historicized. And you know, you know, to whatever extent, the Manson family members were also innocent, but they were corrupted and everything. I mean, I thought it was kind of admirable to give us this ending, but also devastating. Like, but what place do I have in, like, wanting to watch this shit happen? But the amazing yeah. thing is, like you were saying, this tension is, like, building, 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 building. And so even when there's, like, gentle humour, like there's a scene where the, the Manson family are getting scolded mm. in the driveway by uh, by Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah. And you like you start laughing because you've got so much tension building up. He's looking to escape, and so when he has this sort of indication, it's suddenly hilarious. It's but so if, good. It's it real is. tension. It's really masterfully also done. Also cinematic tension. Like it's just, you know, you can't watch this and think Tarantino is does not know what he's doing. Right? Yeah, like exactly. He knows exactly. Yeah. And you're right. He's daring us to kind of. Mm, that was magnificent. I was like, this is really masterful. Yeah. 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 I really want to see it again because. 
you know, I mean, I don't know what I think, to be honest, but I, I love some bits of what he's doing and I hate some bits of what he's doing and I can't say that that's not a great response mm, to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I uh, would rush out to watch this again, actually. I think, and it's made me really want to revisit Inglorious Bastards too, which I think is the mm. strongest of his more recent works. Have either of you played Grand Theft Auto? Like, does yes, it's so very did it remind you as well? Yes. 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 I played Grand Theft Auto in 1999. Okay. In grade seven. Cool. I haven't played it since. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't sure if I was the only I don't one. Know I've what only ever watched people play it. I've never played it myself. About. <laughs> but yeah, all the Essentially, it was, there were a lot out. of pixels <laughs> when I played it. <laughs> there <laughs> might I be can say. more pixels now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, lots of driving around <laughs> listening to the surf radio or whatever. I'm just thinking now, though, in terms of his daring, you, he's also daring Tarantino film bros in a way because. If you sign up for Tarantino for the very well shot stylish violence, yeah, you, there's only a very small amount of that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, you get it at the end, don't you? You get it right at the end. But apart from that, there's like sort of a semi obscure, increasingly obscure references to films. There's like this focus on this buddy relationship. I don't, yeah, it's, it's, and I think that to me is a sign that he's a singular filmmaker making the film he wants to make. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, because th- it's not very quotable. I mean, I don't leave this thinking quotes like, you know, the li- pretty much every other film, mm. you know, there's mm. scenes or there's moments where, you know, you'll pull it out. I mean, I still say, you know, that's a bold statement all the time because of the way that T- Travolta says it in Pop Fiction. Mm. And there's nothing here I don't think I'm going to be taking <laughs> taking away. But maybe that's just me. Well, that because uh, Pop Fiction's set in LA too, isn't it? So he's becoming an interesting chronicler of that mm. city. Someone make a video essay about that. I'm sure they are. Have. I'm yes. sure they are. Me right too. Now. Anyway, yeah, go say it. I want to rewatch it. Same. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. So um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is screening until September 11 at the Astor Theatre. Um, it's also at uh, Thornbury Theatre and a bunch of other ones, but we would recommend the Astor probably. Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. Yes, is taking a break for 10 days after the September 11 um, screening and reopens on September 21st with a screening of Apocalypse Now Final Cut, which runs until September 28th. And you can find more information about both of those at astortheatre.net.au. Heading north to the Thornbury Picture House, alongside screenings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Midsommar, you can find commemorative screenings of Easy Rider on September 5th and 8th, alongside a special screening of The Australian Dream that gets an introduction from Jack Charles. And if anyone remembers Jack Charles' introduction on the opening night of Myth, you'll know that that's not something you can easily pass up. Uh, the Palace Ball one on September 8th from 10am is running a Lord of the Rings marathon all day. Um, I'll be there. September 11 also sees the world... <laughs> as, again, um, it's, it's an annual thing I have to do, as long as there's the special extended editions. Um, September 11 sees the world premiere of Louise Lever's Examination of Feminism in Australia and New Zealand, Revolt, She Said, which features interviews with Laura Mulvey, ex-New Zealand PM Helen Clark, and will be accompanied by a Q&A with the director herself. That's happening at Kino Cinema, and you can find out more information by going to eventbrite.com and typing in Revolt, She Said. 
Ron Clements and John Musker's The Little Mermaid gets a live score from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra at Hamer Hall on September 6th and 7th. More info at artscentremelbourne.com.au. I want to go to that. Too. Okay, cool. It sounds amazing. Tickets are selling fast. Um, Acme may be closed, but that doesn't mean that exciting Acme-adjacent programs aren't still happening. At the, Th- the Treasury Theatre, you can catch the Havana set comedy The Extraordinary Journey of Celeste Garcia, which runs August 31st until September 9th. The Icelandic eco-comedy Woman at War runs from September 14th to 23rd. Also at the Treasury Theatre, Melbourne Filmoteca is screening Mexican drama Tempest on September 3rd and Spanish director Carla Simone's powerful autobiographical film Summer 1993 on September 17th. Eloise, Cinematheque? The Cinematheque is making a grand return after taking a break for the Melbourne International Film Festival this Wednesday, August 28th, with the start of a two-week season focused on Elaine May's four major Elaine May features. Didn't a friend of the podcast just recently publish the world's first ever book about Elaine May? <gasps> friend of the podcast, Alex Nicholas. That's true. It is currently published and being distributed, and I hope to get my hands on a copy very soon. Um, Alex is actually introducing wow. our first screening um, this Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So we're screening A New Leaf and The Heartbreak Kid, which is such a, like I say, I want to say like fun double, but it, I mean, it is fun, but it's kind of yeah, like a new leaf. incredibly depressing. And I feel I saw this double at the Anthology Film Archives in New York a couple of years ago. And you just sit there being like, can things get more horrible and they do and yet you're still in such a good mood anyway it's so fantastic and the next week um ishtar or mikey and nikki and ishtar great okay so two of her more or less successful features that's still fantastic um and so i'm really really excited about this two-week season of elaine may features that she directed obviously it could have been much Longer with stuff she wrote was non credited for. Um, mm, but this of is course, just yeah. a, you know, a concise two week season. Um, I'm really pumped. Great, and congratulations, Heather, on your book. Yes. So, what do you do? I'm a writer. I, I, I'm trying to nail the work life balance. Sooner or later, the party has to end. Why? <laughs> Tyler, this is Jim. Make way. My friend's lover is the man of the hour. Does he play the piano like he's making love to a beautiful woman? You know, none of this changes our friendship. Mm-hmm. What do you think, so savages? We are savages. <laughs> So we're going to close out this episode with a final look back at Myth because there were quite a few things that happened after the last episode um, that we recorded in the salon. I think that was on the like the Friday, and there was a whole there weekend was a, left. Weekends. Yes, there was. Um, and being true Myth aficionados, we filled that weekend with interesting films. Um, Anders, can I begin by asking you what stood out for you from Myth overall, and if there were any things you think were worth mentioning that you caught in that final weekend? Overall, end of the century, I've already rabbited on at length about that. But uh, Sophie Hyde's Animals was interesting. Mm, mm-hmm. She's an Australian director. She set this film in Ireland with two fantastic performances from Holiday Granger and Alia Shawkat um, oh, as yeah. the sort of codependent best friends in their late 20s, early 30s, Laura and Tyler. Shawkat's character, she's a party girl. She... Basically, in simple terms, she and and the film is both more complex than this and isn't. But uh, in simple terms, she's a party animal. 
she lives for the night. Her, like, you know, she works this, like, crappy barista job during the day just to afford, you know, going out and, like, living life to the fullest because, you know, the suburbs settling down, all of that stuff is boring. And Granger's character, Laura, is sort of similar but begins to, I guess, have a sort of semi-identity crisis of sorts when she meets a far more driven and and slightly conservative um, guy who's like this like renowned pianist, Jim. She's been trying to write a book for 10 years and he gets up at 6am every morning to practice the piano and so she starts getting up at 6am in the morning to start writing and then because of this, their codependent relationship begins, there's tension starts happening in that central friendship. Anyway... It's really well made technically, some beautiful imagery of Dublin and just like moments of female friendship that you don't often see on screen. You know, this sort of frank um, relation, no boundaries relationship Mm -hmm. that they have, which is really interesting and told in this sort of vignette kind of style with some sort of flashbacks and, and interspersed with other interesting images. All of that is really interesting. Where I think the film perhaps uh, loses steam is towards the end when it just feels like Shawcat's character is a little bit underdrawn compared to Granger's and and clearly Granger's character is the main character. It just seemed like she liked to party and that was all her character amounted to, Mm. even though the film was trying to suggest there was more to her than that. And even though it's, it's ostensibly not judging her for that lifestyle, it's, it's, it's trying not to be a conservative film that's telling you that you need to settle down when you hit 30 and go move to the suburbs. Even though it's trying not to do that, I think ultimately it kind of does fall into that category. It peters out into maybe a slightly more conservative film than it, 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 it starts out as. Um, Interesting. Very right. worth watching though. Okay. Very worth watching. Sure. So that comes out, I think, in Australia soon. And just like in terms of a really frank portrait of a codependent friendship between two women in their late 20s, um, it's pretty good for that. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Ello. Yes. On the last weekend, I saw a repeat viewing of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> oh, I, I which did too. Yeah. Which was <laughs> maybe my favourite thing of the entire weekend. It was so good. Just it was exactly the same. Same stuff happened. <laughs> same just stuff happened to me. Basically, I yeah, was very right. engaged, very um, turned on by everything. It mm-hmm. was so good. Um, but what else did I see? I saw Monrovia, Indiana, the Frederick Wiseman film. It's kind of tradition to see a Frederick Wiseman film at MIF now, and somewhat. Um, also on the Sunday morning of the last day. Yes, it feels um, like if he were to pass, they would need to, they could fill up the next fifty years by exactly, doing exactly the same thing yeah, every yeah, Sunday yeah. morning. Um, and you know that was kind of crazy for me because you know you think Frederick Wiseman makes these films that are fly in the wall observations about you know crazy shit happening and people unintentionally or intentionally disrupting our institutions and he is a um, you know by no no intrusion of his own opinion, um, a slightly like left of centre director mm-hmm. because of the stuff that he focuses on, the absurdities that he focuses on, uh, uh, you know, revealing. Anyway, when when he made announced Monrovia, Indiana, I was like, oh, cool, a really nice story about a nice town <laughs> in the middle of America. I love, you know, the country. How relaxing. Anyway, Monrovia is wild. 
It is wild. There's, the town? Yes, the, the town oh. and the film. I mean, the town mostly. There was just a lot of shit happening. Basically, the amount of time that Wiseman elects to spend with people who are so evangelical that they're like come across as completely insane is very telling. Mm. Um, it was kind of disturbing mm. to watch this film, mm. but I did enjoy it. Not as much as others. However, some of, you know, the photography was beautiful. I'm obsessed with cornfields. <laughs> there were a lot of that. That was great. Um, but there was a lot of, yeah, batshit crazy stuff going on. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah, I liked it a lot. But I'm glad I um, hauled myself out of bed to see it in the cinema because I did think, oh, I could just probably watch it on Canopy. But I, m- I may have, um, <laughs> you know, let my attention drift if I had decided to do so. However, my favourite thing of the final weekend, I think, was Dudes, the Penelope Spheres film. It was just so extremely me in all sorts of ways. It started with these few establishing shots of a beautiful purpled sky in Manhattan, like the establishing shots of the the skyline, mm-hmm. which was cool. And then we had a few gritty footpaths and diners one altercation between a bunch of guys trying to prove their masculinity and then it switches. So the main characters decide to go move to Los Angeles on a whim and they travel through the desert in some grungy, very unreal way that I kind of loved but it was very stagey. But the film kind of owns the fact that it's really stagey and then later on they meet this Elvis Presley impersonator called I think his name is Dare Delvis. Oh. He travels with kind of like this rodeo and his his name on his van is Dare Delvis. So the film kind of owns the fact that it knows it's, a, you know, a little fake and a bit yeah, just okay. kind of like, you know, latching onto these image, images. They drive through Monument Valley, which is a place that I've been and I really love and mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. I think there are a lot of repeat shots of the same landscape, but whatever, who cares? When um, it's that good, you don't really yeah. mind so much. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's just a lot of fun and it's not a film that takes itself too seriously and I really fucking love that. Anyway, at one point they go into a town and the main characters watch Jesse James, this Henry King film from 1939, which just FYI had only recently seen in Bologna um, oh, okay. So it was kind of cool to just be connected with it again. They, so they go into this cinema in the middle of nowhere to watch it and they watch a scene in the film where Tyrone Power and Henry Fonda are robbing a bank and it's a pretty kind of, you know, action-filled scene. There's a lot of stunts that occur. It's really, really cool. And during this big shootout scene in the film that they're watching in the cinema, someone kind of decides to shoot them and so there's this big shootout in the cinema in the film and there's a cut out to the concession stand person who you can see go like, what's that? But then decides that because there's a shootout in the film that the actual guns aren't occurring. So, the, you know, there's an overlap with the sound of the gun sound effects. And <laughs> the following night I saw Long Day's Journey Into Night, the big gun film. Yes. And maybe you could tell me. Your Andy, most anticipated film of 2019. My most anticipated apparently. film of 2019. And I saw it. It was the last film and I was almost falling asleep, but I did not fall asleep. Oh, congrats. The whole film. Thanks. I've heard it does have somnambulant qualities. It absolutely has somnambulant qualities. But there's a point at which I think the main character maybe says something, like makes a comment about we should 
shoot someone in the cinema because we they wouldn't be able to distinguish between really? the, oh like we w- they wouldn't be able to tell whether the sound effect was coming from the movies or not kind of like drew this connection between the, you know the fictional space of the cinema and you and definitely then, weren't dreaming it while watching I wasn't but it was during yeah, the right. like oniric dream sequence at the end mm. of long day's journey which is most of the film <laughs> yeah which is most of the film and so i really loved that because it kind of to me was like one of those ephemeral connections between films that I think mm. can only be found between like within personal curational experiences. Yes, exactly. That I fucking love and love are like there's often so many during a festival experience yes. where you're just like completely like pounded by films the whole day and these, you know, these beautiful things can occur and I love that. Love kind of connection between the two of them. So what did you think of Long Day's Journey Tonight, your most anticipated film of the year? I really liked it, Andy Hazel. Cool. Um, I enjoyed the connection of the green, the powerful, you know, like the symbolic green dress between that and um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Personal curation. Hello. The, yeah, exactly. That You know, so Tung Wei, I think, wears this green dress at, uh, in a few scenes. I, it's very blurry. Who even knows? No, towards the beginning, I think. Yeah, I the beginning. Yeah. Um, and perhaps it's – anyway, who knows what universe it, it's happening <laughs> yeah. within. But I, it was very me. I was – very happy with how much I anticipated it and how much it gave me in the end. Cool. Yeah. So loved it. Great. Good to know. Yeah. It was a great way. Look, you know, a lot of people, because I had seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire for the second time and a few people I saw afterwards were like, that's the best film to end the festival on. I'm so happy. And in my brain I was a bit sad that I had to go and watch (laughs) my most, because if it it was up to me I would have given up, but it was my most anticipated film of 2019. I I had to do it and I was actually very happy that that was in fact my last Do you know anybody who paired, who did the five-course meal while watching? I don't know anyone who did that. Andy, we don't know anyone that rich. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. When that is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, then we'll find out right away. Really? Zala? Well, I managed to see the closing night film, which was The Farewell by Lulu Wang, which was has been a hugely anticipated film because it was the, one of the biggest stories out of Sundance earlier this year. It was sold for lots of money. People were very hyped about it, saying it's the right film at the right time, made by the right person telling the right story. It is a very interesting story. It is. It's an adaptation of Lulu Wang's own episode of uh, This American Life, this American Life yeah. the NPR podcast, yes. Um uh, in which she tells the story of her grandmother's diagnosis of cancer, which according to Chinese tradition, in, at least in her family, means that you can't inform the person of the, who's suffering cancer that they have only months to live. Instead, you know, you have to kind of pretend that they don't because you don't want their last months to be suffer- to you know, be compounded and to be full of grief. Mm-hmm. And so instead they have a fake wedding with one of her cousins to his very new girlfriend. They've only been together a few months. And so everyone can gather together for this wedding and thereby say goodbye to the grandmother. Um, this film is coming out September 5 for general release. and um, I'm keen to see it. It is um, a really, really good, story, good film. I mean... 
it I think may there's a lot of people in the cinema were crying. There's a lot of people, the particularly ending kind of leaves is quite divisive. It really worked for me. I mean, it is really funny because it is very much about family, and so you are quite quickly introduced to this sprawling family of played by Aquafina, who's playing basically playing the Lily Wang character, and it's her first dramatic turn, and she is fantastic as somebody who is best known for rapping and being quick witted and. Sassy. She's like plays a very, you know, a woman who's kind of forced into this weird situation of grief where she has to make a face of being happy and being convivial and being glad to see her grandmother, who she has a very close relationship to. It's established right in the early scenes that they have a really, really close friendship. Um, and so, you know, when she goes back to China and she starts wondering about home and what home means to her because she lives in New York and she's not doing that well, she's just missed out on a, of a Guggenheim fellowship. Um, and so she's kind of all these people are like you know putting pressure on her, expecting her to do really well, and she's kind of a bit at sea. Um, and but when she comes home, she suddenly has a role, and she's suddenly being fed, and she's suddenly got all of her family around her again. And so the comedy kind of comes quite naturally, and it comes in a really interesting way because I think if you if somebody has a close relationship with their grandmother, they may get more out of this film than I did <laughs> because I, I never knew mine. But either of them, but other people who do, and particularly Chinese families who have this, you know, bond and they often express love through food and they often just talk over each other and that sort of stuff. It's a really close-knit, very expressive family. And so it is very engaging to watch dramatically. And the comedy does tend to come in this way where you – nobody's ever being mocked or the butt of jokes. It's always like observational comedy or it's like a a comedy that brings you close together with somebody. And so I think if people are familiar with the experience of having a family member who – they can mock, but if a stranger mocks them, it's suddenly totally out of line. Yeah, that's very much the tone of what's going on. I think with this particular family in this film. So anyway, yeah, it was a good choice for closing night. And Lily Wang turned up and she did the presentation. She was there. She was there. She spoke for like about cool. twenty seconds, wow. just saying, "I hope you enjoy the film." And one of the actors was there as well. But actually, I think about sixty percent of the film is in Mandarin, which I think is quite unusual. Cool. I wasn't expecting that, but it's great because. There is this movement between both, which I think feels very authentic and feels kind of brings you, draws you in rather than, you know, makes you feel like you're a stranger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some late breaking news, courtesy of friend of the pod, Joanna Dimitia. Who you think I am? The <laughs> film star oh, yes. Juliette Binoche as a catfisher. It is the best performing French language film of 2019 in Australia, having made over $615,000 at the box <laughs> office. So there you go. Fun fact what? for you. But um, this film is very much <laughs> worth watching because if only for an amazing scene where Benoche... So basically she creates this hoax persona, 24-year-old uh, version of herself to seduce a boy who a guy it's a long story anyway uh, there's this amazing scene where she has phone sex with um the guy she's been seducing through facebook messenger chats and it's just glorious and watching Juliet Binoche do that I don't think I'm ready for Juliet Binoche to have phone sex <laughs> just quite yet <laughs> it's really it's 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 really delightfully awkward because it takes place in a car. There's lots of like evocative lighting. It's great. It's <laughs> traffic lights, fucking the green, traffic lights, amber, red, all kinds. And it's like glowing on her face <laughs> while she's writhing in the chair. Anyway, good times, good times. Go watch it at your local palace cinema. <laughs> Biggest French language film of the year? Yes, so far, yes. No. <laughs> Does yes. This it's only August, you guys. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Portrait of Lady on Fire will do that in. It's oh, opening God. night, of yeah, course. On Boxing Day. On Boxing Day. Yeah, yeah. come on, Portrait of Lady on Fire. 
Please. Um, I also managed to catch um, Brian Walsh's film Beats, which is this really fantastic Scottish documentary-style drama about these two guys who have a, a best friends in this small Scottish town and in 1994 and they've, you, they're, like, liberated by the rave scene. And so oh. there's this, this idea of, you know, mid-'90s rave was extremely political. They just passed the Criminal Justice Bill which banned any repetitive music in a public space. And so suddenly all these techno dudes were making slightly non-repetitive music which was basically, you know, brought thousands of people together in warehouses at very short notice and the police were coming to break them up. And Were you one of those people? I, went, I actually played at a rave in Scotland in 1999. <laughs> so Andy it, it had passed, it kind of passed by. Who are you? Well, that's a, another question. Um, <laughs> but basically it's this beautiful story of male friendship between these quite poor guy whose older brother is a hardened criminal and then this middle-class guy whose family are trying to become better and try and move out of this out of suburb of Edinburgh. It's, yeah, fantastic. Great score, great soundtrack. I remember I very was very keen on that in the program and I didn't get it. Yeah, get that was really it, cool. So um, if you happen to be a guitar nerd, I would recommend Carmine Street Guitars, which was the last film I saw at MIF, um, which is a documentary set in one week of the life of a luthier who makes guitars in Greenwich Village. And while he's there, I'm not a guitar fan, but I'm a Carmine Street fan. So Are you? Oh, cool. I? Yeah, you would, you would love it. You've probably walked past Do it a you? bunch of times. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, so Rick Kelly just sits in there hand-making these guitars out of old buildings from New York. So he only works with wood that's over 100 years old. So he's made guitars out of the Chelsea Hotel, out of these various bars when they get torn down. So there's scenes of him going around to these building sites where he would like walk up to a bit of wood and like knock on the wood and go, oh, yeah, quite resonant. Yeah, that's good. That'll be good for a neck and mm, this is good for the body of a guitar. It's like he's got like a three-year waiting list because everybody wants one of his guitars. But in during this week, you know, Nils Klein from Wilco will walk in going, oh, I want to buy a guitar for Jeff Tweedy, the lead singer from Wilco. He's one of my really good friends. And so he'll play a guitar and buy a guitar. Mark Rabot, who played with Tom Waits and a whole bunch of people will come in and jam. And then Lenny Kay, Patti Smith's guitarist who made the Nuggets compilation albums will come in and buy a guitar and they'll just... But they also have very, very leading questions, which is like, how did you get into making guitars? Oh, yeah, so what's the story with this? And then basically it's all this quite, quite like awkward dialogue which enables Rick Kelly to talk about how he found this shop and stuff. I found it fantastic because I love watching people play guitar, particularly people like um, Bill Frizzell and these people who are in the film. That's a very sweet film. Great. Thanks, Andy. Don't know how you watch it, but I would recommend Karma Street Guitars. Uh, which brings us to the end. I think of this particular yeah. episode of this slightly wrong rambling episode of Cultural Capital. Um, find us online. You probably know where. I'm Andy Ricky. I'm Addisus. I'm Eloise Low Ross. And, and we, we think, think you're, you're great. great. <laughs> She set this film in. Oh my god! If you Google animals, it doesn't give you the film. Funny that. <laughs> uh, she, <laughs> she. She. <laughs> <laughs>